0: today's message, Revealing a Real Bible Code. Now, I don't know if you all have noticed, for the past couple decades, uh, there have been all kinds of books and movies released with this proposed Bible code that they reveal. I ran across one of them the other day on one of the free streaming movie channels, and I've never paid much attention to this, but I thought, hey, it's free, let's give it a little glance at what they're talking about. Usually this kind of stuff holds about as much validity to me as the Nostradamus-type stuff does, which is pretty much zero. <laughs> Sadly, this video that I watched was so poorly done. It was the narration. You know how you in the beginning of some movies you'll have the narrator where there's dramatic music and they'll say a word, and then there's dramatic pause and there's music, and then they'll say another word. Well, you figure that's going to stop after the first few minutes. Well, I watched for like 20 minutes, and that's how it was the whole time. And the music was loud, so it's like, you can barely hear what the girl's saying. and But it's just, it started to get great on my nerves. It was just irritating because it's like, this is not supposed to be spooky through the whole thing. But then it got worse. When it got to the point where they started talking about the Gnostic writings and the Gnostic Gospels, I'm like, okay, they're going to go way off the path. They're not going to talk about a Bible code. They're going to start looking at Gnostic stuff. So anyway, it was I was irritated enough with the narration, so I quit watching it So at that point. What I did learn through those short minutes that I they gave examples before they got into explaining it all, is that the idea of this secret Bible code is is that these people are mathematically applying various number combinations to find words buried within the text. The words are then able to supposedly form sentences that reveal events that were way off in the future of the text writer, but many of them have been in our past history. What I'm here to discuss today may be viewed by some as being somewhat similar or along the same lines as this, far out idea of a hidden code, as I'll be discussing a way of reading the scriptures in a manner that highlights or emphasizes certain aspects of the test. Text. text. <clears throat> There's nothing really secret to be found though, unless a deeper understanding of scripture text is a secret, which may be true for many professing Christians who don't really read their Bibles. What we're discussing is called chiasms. What I'm it's just gonna be a brief introduction to that today. Uh doesn't require any kind of mathematical equations or puzzling tricks to piece together letters to find hidden words. Just to give you an example of some of the ones that the video revealed. Basically, they'll say if you take, in the Hebrew, every 50th letter, it spells words. Or, you know, they they have mathematical things. And then they'll take these weird things where they'll say, like, look every so many letters, and if you find a word, then stop, take how many letters apart those were, like say if it's every fourth letter, but then you take four lines of text across four lines of text, make a box, and then do this. It's almost like a puzzle. And then you find sentences. And they supposedly were predicting things about Obama and about Hiroshima. And, you know, they could find – the one that the one example they showed – actually, I saw online was uh, – oh, it was something that recently happened. And it's just – they just – it's kind of crazy stuff. But anyway, we're not looking at that today. So um, – What we're looking at today is simply something that scholars have noticed and increasingly have been studying over the past few decades. There are various terms used by different authors referring to these arrangements, as we shall see, but for the sake of simplicity this morning, I won't get too much into the additional related jargon. We're just going to stick with uh, calling them chiasms or chiistic literary structures or parallels. they, They refer to them that way, too. Some of the more common terms people use for chiasms would be an inverted symmetric parallelism, which describes the structure as we'll see. Attention to chiasms began to appear in European publications back in the early 1700s. Then in the 1920s in the U.S., a Mr. Niles Lund published some articles about it. He He was the dean of North Park Theological Seminary and he spent 30 years of his career studying the chiastic Literary Structure, and he published a book in 1942 on his research. One of the next major treatments on the subject came in 1999 with the book by Dr. David Dorsey. Now, Dorsey states, My fascination with Hebrew literary structure was kindled when I began teaching Old Testament courses in seminary. At that time, I was struck by the apparent lack of order within many of the biblical books. Jeremiah seemed hopelessly confused in its organization. So did Isaiah and Hosea and most of the prophets. Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes appeared to be in almost complete disarray. And even the more orderly historical books, such as Joshua and King's, showed signs of strangely careless organization. Why did the Bible authors write like this? I would never write a book or an article or even a private letter with such carelessness of arrangement. I was intrigued by the possibility that the Hebrew authors might have organized their compositions according to literary conventions that were different from ours. I began to discover over a period of years that several structuring patterns rarely used by us were remarkably common in the books of the Hebrew Bible, particularly chiasmus or symmetry, parallelisms, and sevenfold patterns. I was increasingly struck by how often these patterns had been utilized to arrange biblical books. It was my mother who gave me a love for literature. I still have many fond memories of those wondrous bedtime stories whose structure, like the Bible, were designed for the ear and not the eye. Keep note of that. That you know, he, he does mention that, uh, like the Bible, it, it is more designed to be heard. We'll be talking on that a little bit in a minute. In his book, Dorsey describes the structure and meaning of Old Testament books using the chiastic of each Old Testament book. Using the chiastic approach, he found Genesis to contain this approach more frequently, but reveals how it is evident in every Old Testament book. So it is safe to say that this is a common style to the Hebrews. Well, when it comes to the New Testament, Bible scholars also find examples of this chiastic approach in every book as well, with some books showing it more prominently than others. So what is a chiasm or symmetric parallelism? It is a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern to show clarity and emphasis within a story. In a nutshell, it is usually laid out like this. A, B, C, C1, B1, A1, or some other similar pattern. We'll see there's various versions of that. Each of the opening points gets repeated with the similar idea, but in a reverse pattern. Though there are several different arrangements, and each can go by different technical names depending on the author, regardless of all these terms, it is a literary pattern that has been noticed and studied more and more. I like the simple way one author describes it, using a sandwich example. You start with the piece of bread, which is A, B, you add mustard, C, a piece of meat, C1, add another piece of meat, B1, more mustard, and A1, another slice of bread. This is a very basic, simplistic example of how how a chiasm might lay out. As you can see, with A section is a parallel, as is each B and C section and the C in the central point of the sandwich. That would make C the key purpose of the whole breakdown. In other words, for this illustration, we would expect the sandwich to be named after C and not B or A. So C would be the focal point here. These types of patterns can be found on a micro level, meaning within a single sentence in Scripture, or at a macro level, which means a larger discourse covering many verses. This type of chiasmus styling is widely found in ancient literature, but it often is overlooked by modern interpreters, mainly because the modern mind, unlike the ancient hearers, is not rehearsed in its use, appreciation, or even recognition of these patterns within the text. So let's jump right in and show you what I mean as we take a look at a few of these types of structures, starting with the simple one on a single verse level from Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So a chiastic look at this verse would lay it out like this. A, no one can serve two masters. B, for either he will hate the one, C, and love the other. C, one, here's where it starts reversing back out. Or he will be devoted to the one, B, one, and despise the other. A, one, you cannot serve God and money. So while we typically see this verse telling us we must choose which master we wish to choose. There is more profound understanding when we see it in a chiastic layout. We see three parallel themes here. A, the serving of one of the two masters. You see A and A1 are similar in, in topic. B, hating and despising one of them. And C, loving or devotion to the other one. The focal point is here, It is, of course here, is C, the C parallel. The center of Achaism is understood to be the key focus of the text in question and where we are to look to grasp the emphasis of the whole story. So instead of approaching this verse and seeing the choice being that of choosing one of two masters, we see the central point is focused on love and devotion to that choice. The focus then becomes that of loving the master, not choosing the master. Let's look at another one. This one has four pieces instead of three. This one's coming from Joshua 1, 5 through 7. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you, will call, you you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to, be, to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So, we would break it down like this. I know there's a lot of text on here, but hopefully the color coding helps. Uh, If you... Like I say, the parallels A and A and stuff. uh, So A, just as I was with Moses, so I would be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. B, be strong and very courageous. C, being careful to do according to all the law that you may have good success. D, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. D1, meditate on it day and night. C1, be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You will make your way prosperous will have good success b1 be strong and courageous do not be frightened and do not be dismayed and a1 for the lord your god is with you wherever you go i know that's a lot of text crammed into a small space i took some of it out which is a little ellipsis there but hopefully you can see the layout as i color code them to try to show the connections between the two the number of lines can vary there is no set number of parallels that it has to hold but Here, notice the A sections both speak of God's continual presence. The B section speaks of being strong and courageous. The C section speaks of keeping the law to have success. And section D deals with the central, with the actual book of the law. There are also other kinds of patterns that that, than those that totally match, where some have a definite single central point, but not a double point as we've seen in some of these. Like we see in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we break that down as, come to me, A, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. B, and I will give you rest, Take my yoke upon you, X, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And then it starts reversing. b one, and you will find rest from your souls, for my yoke is easy, A1, and my burden is light. So the parallels are dealing with A, being heavy laden and under a burden, or, and dealing with the burden. B, getting rest under his easier yoke. And then the center focal point in this one is X, being that of learning from Christ's gentle and lowly heart. Another simple chiasm would be like 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Or, if we break that down, A, no one born of God, B, makes a practice of sinning, X, for God's seed abides in him, B, one, and he cannot keep on sinning, A1, because he has been born of God. So we see both A patterns talk about being born of God, both B talk about sinning, and then the central is God's seed abiding in him. So why did they write with this literary style so often, you may ask? Well, as Dave has pointed out in previous sermons, the Hebrew people were a people who gathered at set times, and they heard the word, as I mentioned earlier in that quote. They were not the type of culture that sat around reading their Bibles. The scrolls were read to them, and they learned to memorize them from their hearing. This type of chiastic pattern, parallel writing style, made for easier ways to remember things, since it often followed some sort of related, repetitive pattern. So, that was then, and this is now, right? Why should it really matter to us these days to try to see these patterns ourselves? One author, Roland Maynet, states that the Old and New Testaments are replete with variants of these parallelisms, or chiastic structures, and makes the case, he makes the case, that recognition of these structures, structural devices, is an important key for accurate exegesis of many major passages, sections, and at times, whole books of the Bible. We know how badly Scripture is handled these days by most modern evangelical churches. Context is ignored, verses are stripped out and made to say things they were never, out of their context, say things that they were never intended to say. So, People who have spent many years studying this and coming away basically, have come away basically stating that a clearer understanding of much of the Bible can be had when understanding these literary patterns within. So aside from giving us a more poetic beauty at times, they can be an integral part of understanding the, the writer's key point of focus. Sadly, the majority of biblical scholars, while acknowledging the extensive use of chiasms in both Testaments, some still often just view it as more of a literary curiosity with little significance when it comes to interpreting the meaning of a text. They seemingly fail to grasp that there is, a, there is quite a significance placed on the structure, structural arrangement of an organized body of communication, especially in ancient literature of this nature from this type of culture. Of course, these have been some of the simpler ones that we've shown so far, ones that can take a verse or three and break it down and they find the paralleled words that stand out as they are related. But the same style idea can be found being used even across large sections of verses, with multiple verses making up each parallel theme. For instance, the story of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which spans two chapters, but a pattern can be found as, and there's a lot of text here, but it's I broke down the key elements here. A, Joab is on the field besieging Rabbah but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. That's 11, 2, three, five. B, David sleeps with Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant. C, David arranges for Uriah's death. D, Bathsheba mourns for Uriah. E, Nathan confronts David. D1, as it starts reversing now, David mourns for his infant son. C2, C1, I'll put two in there. David's son dies. B1, David sleeps with Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant. A one. David goes to Rabbah and finishes the siege, then returns to Jerusalem. So we see multiple verses making up each piece, and the pattern covers a much larger portion of the passage and storyline. Now, we see you could see the patterns there of Jerusalem and then David. I mean, it's it's really interesting how they wrote like this with uh, you know Uriah's death and David's son's death and David mourns and David, and Bathsheba mourns. So there's a pattern here that the scholars have found. Now, for another one, this structure is, is usually referred to as rhetorical chiastic structure. We're looking at the lost sheep parable from Luke 15, 4 through 7. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, "Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so I tell you, there will be a more there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The thing noticeably different with different with this one that we shall see is it breaks down with the exact same opening and closing patterns, not a reversal as previously discussed. We find. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, number that's one, two, if he has lost one of them, three, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? Then it has a chiastic periscoping, A, and go after the one that is lost, B, until he finds it. And when he has found it, C, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, D, the central point, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, C, one, saying to them, rejoice with me. B1, for I have found my sheep, A1, that was lost. And then it repeats the 1, 2, 3. 1, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven, 2, over one sinner who repents, 3, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So both the opening and closing patterns is centered on the same order of you, 1, and 99. You see that in, in all three of those opening and closing statements. Whereas the chiastic pattern in the middle focuses on a being lost, B, find, C, rejoice, D, restore, and then it goes back with rejoice, find, and lost on the backside. Now, for another one, here's a common parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15. This story likewise has a pattern, but it is also different from the patterns that we have seen and covered so far. In this case, we do not find keywords in the text that match. But instead, each section of the story represents a separate theme, and it is in the theme that has the pattern. Author Kenneth Bailey describes this parable in this fashion. The parable is a drama in two acts. Act one is the exile and return of the prodigal. This act focuses on three themes set in three scenes, which are followed by the prodigal's speech in the far country. This speech falls into two parts. And all these numbers get confusing, but we'll see it. The three themes are then reversed and presented in inverse order, which is to be expected for this type of pattern. In the three scenes that follow the speech, the second act is a drama of the older son and his father. In this case, the identical outline appears. Only the final scene is missing. Now, I'll note one thing before we start as a reminder. Um, I know it was, I don't know, a year or two ago, I spoke on uh, this particular prodigal son, um, and I just want to remind you of one of the things that was covered then because it's going to be noted here, but I didn't want to go into too much detail, is in that culture that the parable was written, for someone to ask for their inheritance early was looked upon as if they were wishing that their father were dead. That will assist us with understanding this first section of, that we encounter here. Now, since the story is way too long to try to show on the slides as a pattern, as I've done before, I will instead read the sections and will build the pattern As we go, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So as I mentioned, asking for the inheritance in this manner is to wish for the father's death. This is the theme of scene one of the story. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. At this point, scene two, all is lost. All that the son had had been spent recklessly, and he is now in need. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, and we just read that. So he, yeah, okay. I got the wrong side there. So he he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who was who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. At this stage scene 3, there is unqualified rejection by the son by everyone around him. This is then followed by the two-part speech by the son. Not many days later, okay. This was not like, okay. This is what happens when you work on two different computers, I think, in two different versions of PowerPoint, and then you bring them together. Okay. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So, part of the speech represents, part one of the speech represents the problem the son is dealing with. And then on to part two, I will go, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So part two of the speech has the son figuring out what the solution to the problem is. So he heads home, and we find, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here the son returns home, and before anything is said by him, he finds unqualified acceptance. On top of that, what does the father do? And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now the son, who came home after having lost everything, all is restored. The father then continues, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for my son has was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So whereas he started the story with the symbolic death of the father by the son, we end with the theme of resurrection of the son to the father. So we find the pattern of this first part of the story is death, all is lost, unqualified rejection, the problem, and then it reverses, starts the reversal, the solution, unqualified acceptance, all is restored, and resurrection. So, that ends the main story with the first son. Then it turns on to look at the second son. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant? Scene one finds a son as he stands aloof outside of the situation at hand. And he is told, and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Scene two finds his brother presented with your brother and peace, which of course makes him angry. And as he stands there angry, we are told, his father came out and entreated him. So the father steps down from the position of the host as the party in order to give to the other son costly love. Now, again, I don't know. The the message I'd given before goes into a little detail in that culture what it meant for the host to actually come down and step out of the tent and go out and do what he did. So this was another time that the father really shouldn't have done what he did, but he did for the sake of love to his son. But in return, the son responds by saying, But he answered his father, Look. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friend. The son is focused on my actions and my pay. It is all concerned with his own standing. The son then continues, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. So then he turns around and starts throwing the issue back up, dealing with his brother, with his brother's actions and his brother's pay. The father then replies, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The father again shows his son his costly love and explains to his son, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so the story ends with, Your brother is alive and with joy. And Bailey points out that Sophisticated first century listeners and readers would identify the matching stanzas and clearly sense the dramatic tension of the missing ending that the Pharisaic audience alone could solve by accepting to be found in Jesus. This parable was told to the Pharisees and they would have perceived that the angry son was referring to them. Their response is, of course, left open to the story since they, the Pharisees, had to end the story with their decision on what to do with this Christ fellow that they were dealing with. Of course, we know what their response was and the result that came down upon them and the resulting expanded blessings that were then granted to the other son. Moving on, let's examine another pattern, sometimes referred to as a parallel symmetry, which basically means it is an alternating repetition, but these types differ from the structure we've seen so far as as those that tend to periscope out from a central theme. These type of structures have a parallel aspect, but not the same periscoping central theme. An example can be found in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If A, if your right eye causes you to sin, B, tear it out and throw it away, C, for it is better that you lose one of your members, D, than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna, A, and if your right hand causes you to sin, B, cut it off and throw it away, C, for it is better that you lose one of your members, D, than that the whole body go into Gehenna. So the pattern is A, B, C, D, and then it repeats, A, B, C, D. Yet together they still make a parallel theme. And as you can see, the A's and they all go together in these two different verses. <clears throat> Another different type can be seen when there, is, there will be a pattern within a pattern. Let's look quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through 14. Now, I'm not going to read these chapters, of course, a lot of chapters, but we're going to lay out the pattern and the themes, and then the pattern within the pattern. First, the initial pattern we find is A, men and women leading in worship, 11 through 16, B, disorder and worship over Holy Communion and the sacrament, which is eleven seventeen 17 through 34, C, the spiritual gifts discussed in theory, which is chapter 12 1 to 31 the central theme is love 13 chapter 13 then it starts to periscope back out c1 the spiritual gifts in practice which is 14 verses 1 through 15 b1 is a disorder in worship over preaching the word which is chapter 14 16 to 33a and then it ends with uh, a1 women and men worshiping which is 14 33b through 40 as we see as we seem to see that the middle focal point of the whole thing is the 13 verses on love, we can dig deeper. And that 13 verse section on love is also a pattern that can be broken down as A, love and the spiritual gifts, which is one, two, three. B is love defined positively, which is verse 4A. C, the central point, love defined negatively, which is 4B through 6, and then it reverses out B1, Love, defined positively. A1, love and the spiritual gifts. Verses 8 through 13. The overarching seven sections take a look at the conflict and confusion in worship at Corinth and the need to focus on love. Now, this particular two breakdowns here came from another of Kenneth Bailey's books. And he states afterwards that Obeying this, observing the structure of this essay was a turning point in my journey with 1 Corinthians. If Paul had to had to, done the effort to put chapters 11 through 14 together in this thoughtful way, the question becomes became what about the rest of the epistle? Ever so slowly, the composition of the chapters in the epistle appearing, appeared like a magnificent castle emerging into the bright sunlight with the gradual lifting of a dense fog that was in my mind. But we can go one step further than what even Bailey had covered here. For if we look back at Bailey's breakdown Of the 13 verses on love, you look at the last section, which is chapter uh, verses 8 through 13. Believe it or not, there is a pattern even evident within that. A, love never ends. B, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. C, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. D, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. C1, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. B1, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And then A1, which repeats back that the greatest of these is love. When we recognize this chiastic structure, which periscopes inward, we can fully appreciate the individual corresponding A and A1, B, B1, C, C1, as a parallel theme. And even though each of these themes appear at a distance from one another in the text structure, they complete each other as thematic twins. An interesting note, too, in some of these parallel arrangements, if we were to go back and read these verses starting from the central point and putting each of the thematic twins back together, it still often makes good sense. This is one of those cases. And if we reassemble this verse from the inside out, following D, C, B, and the A parallel themes, we end up with, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love never ends. Now, I could go on with example after example from scriptures, as there are even more additional patterns and theme breakdowns that could be shown. Some who have studied this process even further have said that the Bible contains a couple thousand of these chiastic patterns. This morning, I only wish to give you a brief introduction to this hidden code that the ancients incorporated within the text. Most modern Bible readers view the scriptures as just randomly patterned writing styles, never giving any thought to the possible idea of a purposeful underlying structure. So to them, the underlying structure is a hidden code that they miss, one which could help in clarifying verses further for their understanding. I am hopeful that if this is the first time that you have heard of this idea of a purposeful literary structure in the ancient texts, that, this, that just knowing this is there in the scriptures, may make your Bible study that much more interesting, especially if you start, if you start looking for them as you go. Finding these chiastic patterns is sometimes easy and sometimes hard, but instead of just reading through things, slow down. Look for patterns. Look for repetition. When you run across one, stop and examine around it to see if it expands into a broader pattern. One writer relayed how he ran across one of the simpler ones. I recently came across a very simple chiasm one morning so let me take you through the process. I was reading Matthew 23, which is the chapter about the seven woes. Then I saw the words exalt and exalted occurred in the same verse. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I saw the repetition of exalt, but the repetition of the center word humble and humbles only appeared when I reread the verse. I had to go back over it again to catch that I had what I had initially missed. A, whoever exalts. B, himself, C, will be humbled. C1, whoever humbles, B1, himself, A1, will be exalted. Matthew twenty three twelve. This chiasm with its clear central point was God's word for me that day. Possibly we all need reminders about humility. As we have seen, these patterns and themes can take many forms. They can be themes that are opposite and build backwards, but they can also be repetitive themes of the same type of things, Sometimes it may be a noticeable change in the flow of a story that gives the clue of a potential chiasm. Looking for repetitive themes in separate sections of a story, they then examine them to see if they create a pattern. One note that was made by Mr. Clark, whom I just quoted, was that it is best to use a more literal Bible translation in order to find these chiastic themes. He suggests ones like the KJV, the NASB, or the ESV. I would actually alter his suggestions and suggest replacing the KJV with Young's Literal Translation. It has the same manuscripts behind it as the KJV does, but is obviously written to be much more literal. The reason he gives for using these types of translations is that these words and phrases and related themes would be easier to find with such a word-for-word translation. In using some of the more thought-for-thought translations, like the NIV, the Message, the Living Bible, things along that line, it would make the patterns near impossible to find. For most of these modern types of translations, the words are modernized, they're changed, and often the order of the words are altered. The closer you can get to the original rendering from the Hebrew, the easier these patterns may appear. Another writer commenting on the subject states that when running into what appears to be a questionable, uh, to be or is a questionable chiastic pattern, it is important to go back and compare the original language. Since there are times where the same Greek or Hebrew word is translated into multiple different English words and vice versa, it is best to compare with the original language text. This will confirm better if the actual words, as well as the order they appear in, make for a true pattern or theme. Once we begin to see just how greatly these literary styles are used throughout most of scripture, we should be further amazed at how the ancient cultures were mentally trained to be able to hear, and grasp these patterns with little to no study, as we tend to have to do. These patterns were intentionally used to make things easier to understand for the hearing cultures of that time, and those listeners were able to hear and catch the central point and the surrounding points much more easy. To me, that is somewhat mind-boggling, considering most of us read the scriptures year after year, and we rarely notice any such patterns. While the Old Testament is said to be laced throughout with them, When it comes to the New Testament, some have found it to be not as thoroughly used. It is said that the writings of Matthew, Mark, and John are full of them because those writers were Jewish. But books like Luke, for instance, who was a Gentile writer, contain fewer chiastic patterns. Of course, discovering these patterns is most easily done when you already have a solid familiarity with the scriptures. If you are faithfully reading it regularly, then that increased familiarity with the stories should make the texts and patterns begin to become more easily identified. In writing about ways to begin identifying a pattern, one writer on the subject stated, "The process. this process is where a sound understanding of scripture comes into its own. Finding individual words that make up a chiasm is just a mechanical process. Thinking upon the word and seeking to rightly understand it is a lifetime's work. Now, one word of warning. Most people who have discovered this world of chiasmic, patterns, warn against going overboard and focusing upon the patterns of the texts and finding ones that don't actually exist. This is not hard to imagine since people are so prone to do the exact same thing when it comes to the basic interpretations of text. They force their interpretation onto a text that has no relation to what they want it to say. Author A. I. H. Thompson in his book on chiasms in the Pauline letters puts it this way. The main purpose of this study is to show how the identification and analysis of chiasmus in Pauline letters is a far more valuable and precise tool in the exegete's hands than many have previously realized. However, some of the earlier work in this whole field has left an unfortunate legacy that makes it essential to approach it very carefully indeed. Thus, until recently, the perception has been widespread that the study of chiasmus in the New Testament is little more than an esoteric pursuit of a few enthusiasts whose exuberance in the discovery of chiasms of astonishing complexity is on, in almost every page of the New Testament seems to know no limits. It is not surprising that this has provoked an often justifiable backlash of scholarly skepticism among the more cautious, who feel that many such chiastic patterns tell us more about the ingenuity of the commentator than about the intention of the original author." So while the process can greatly benefit your studies and understanding of Scripture, it is important to not turn this literary structure search into an obsession that ends up robbing from the true beauty of Scripture. There are many sites on the web where people have found these patterns, but most everyone who, who has been involved in this study, they all suggest that you go about finding your own and using others' findings more as a verifications to what you believe you may be seeing. Of course, as I just briefly mentioned, the major factor necessary to even remotely begin picking up on these structures is to get in there and frequently read the Word. Familiarity with the text and the storyline ultimately will allow you to better recall pieces from here and there, and then you will begin to see the connections of themes across longer sections of text. As Christians, we all cherish God's Word as being unique and inspired. Hopefully, this introductory look into the world of chiasms and ancient literary structures just shows further how special these writings are and the depth that exists that can be studied in time, can be studied time and time again to find new riches for our spiritual growth. Hopefully, being exposed to this teaching this morning will pique your interest in continuing to dig deeper into God's word to glean the additional riches that have been buried, that may have been buried right in front of you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much today. We thank you for your word. We thank you as we learn more about it that we see just the depths that are there, things that we may not even be aware of that were written down by those who you inspired to write. We just pray, Lord, that we would cherish your word and honor your word by diligently studying to understand. We pray that these types of ancient patterns that we learn about, that we would find ways that they would heighten our understanding of what you're saying in your word. That points can be focused upon that were intended to be, and that we would better understand your word. We thank you so much for the word that you have preserved for us. We pray that we would be diligent to stay within it, to read it regularly, to be more familiar with it, to love it, to cherish it, to make it what we guide our lives by and what we learn about youth from. That we would not follow after ear-tickling doctrines that take us away from your word, but that you would help us to stay within the word that you have given to us and reveal to us the patterns that we can understand better what is being said. Thank you so much for this. Amen.